and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the podcast where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman, and today we're going to focus on one of my favorite bands, not only of the 1980s, but all time Level 42. I first discovered Level 42 back in 1985 with their World Machine album featuring Something About You. I'm sure most of you know that song. Two years later, they released Lessons in Love in the Running in the Family album, and I had a chance to speak with its keyboardist and one of its vocalists, Mike Linup. Mike was very gracious to give me some of his time. We discussed a bunch of uh, topics dealing with Level 42 and his personal uh, solo career. Uh, Level 42, it's pretty funny with them because when you discover a band who made it kind of big, not with their first album, but probably maybe the third or fourth, you have the opportunity to discover their music prior to that album, and that's what I did with Level 42. And one of the reasons why I think they're one of my favorite bands is they change up their tempo and, you know, style of play from album to album. I'm dating myself right there with albums, but... And helping me relive my youth today is Mike Linup. Mike, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Hey, this is a real treat for me. Level 42 is one of my all-time favorite bands, so... I appreciate this once again. Uh, going back to really the old days, how did the band form? Well, um, it sort of happened quite organically. Um, I'm from London, and the original other three members of the band are all from the Isle of Wight, um, Mark King and then Leonard. They knew each other, but they each individually sort of come to London um, to try and get something going, or in the case of Phil, he was studying at the same music college that I was at. And so I bumped into Phil there, and um, we got, to, you know, I heard him playing, basically, playing drums in the percussion room at the, at the Guildhall where I, where I was studying, and I knew it wasn't one of our guys, because he just sounded fabulous. And mm-hmm. um, so we got chatting and talking about music, and family had things in common, and then he told me that, you know, his brother and uh, his friend Mark King, who was another drummer from the Isle of Wight, were in America at the time. And they, they'd they gone over there on a sort of budget airline with hardly any money to just, you know, knock on the doors of, of musicians and see if they could make something happen. And of course, it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. But um, they had a great experience and they came back and after a, a few months of sort of hanging out together and talking about who the best drummer is and, you know, playing records of Weatherreport and James Brown. And uh, we finally, you know, agreed that we should, you know, just do something together. So I booked up the percussion room at college and we'd meet on a Monday evening and jam. And uh, that's really where the band started. Now, the, the band's a little bit different than most 80s bands. It's like a jazz, you know mixed to it, was that something that organically came about, or was that something that you intentionally wanted to do? No, totally, totally organic, because, um, you know, our, the, the, the musicians that we admired collectively that we could all find a meeting point with were, you know, it was like John McLaughlin, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, you know, Chikoria, Herbie Hancock, uh, Stevie Wonder, James Brown, um, you know, a bit of cream, Jimi Hendrix thrown into it. But that Miles Davis, you know, Bitches Brew, that was kind of really 
the music that, that we dug. So it was kind of when jazz was kind of meeting fusion. It was the whole thing that came out of Miles's, um, you know, melting pot, where we had Hans and Chick and Joe Zawinul and Wayne Shorter and Tony Williams and Lenny White, Bill Cobham and John McLaughlin and, um, you know, that was, uh, they, they of course all went off famously to sort of form their own groups and sort of extrapolate from that point. And that was really the music that we loved. So when we got together, we, you know, we were composing instrumental music and jams and, you know, Mark, obviously, being a drummer um, and still being a drummer. And I also was playing drums at the time that we met. So, you know, that kind of rhythmic sort of funk groove thing was very much in our DNA. And uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, that, that was the music that sort of got us started. And I suppose our early stuff probably reflects, you know, that more more than anything. But um, we were lucky because uh, our very first producer, who had a small independent record label and a record shop in North London, he had his ears to the ground. He knew there was this thing that was bubbling under called the sort of British jazz funk scene where kids were going to clubs and dancing to kind of jazz funk and jazz fusion albums. And uh, I think it was probably uh, maybe a, a kind of reaction to the punk thing, which had sort of gone another way. And um, this guy, Andy Soichi, our first producer, he thought that what we were doing would sort of fit into that and kind of so it turned out. Now, who came up with the name of the band? Well, it was a bit of a joint effort between us and Andy, Andy Soiker, our first producer. I mean, the thing was that we were sitting around and having meetings when we were recording you know, our first single, Love Me Love. And in fact, previous to that, when I booked up the um, actual live gig at the College Student Union Bar, we didn't have a name, and we couldn't agree. You know, none of us could agree on anything. Um, so it was it was a real pain. And then Mark King came in the last rehearsal that we had before our first show and said, "Right, we're going to be called ACH." We kind of said, "Why ACH?" And he said, "Well, listen, I just came in on the bus, number eighty-eight, and I thought it's a good number. It doesn't mean anything. You know, it's short, easy to remember." You know, and we need a name, so let's go for it. So we did. So that first gig, we called ourselves 88. And then we found out afterwards there was an, another group um, gigging around London called Rocket 88. Mm. Sort of big number 88 in the poster, so we thought, oh, it's a bit close to home. What can we do? And Mark and Boone, the guitarist, were both reading um, Douglas Adams' this Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at the time. And they know that the number 42 is a very significant number. It's the meaning of life, the yep. universe, and everything. The answer. Um, very <laughs> tongue-in-cheek at the same time. We just swapped the 82. 42. We were going to call ourselves 42 when our first single was about to come out. And Andy, our first producer, came back with, no, I want it to be level 42 because he, he thought that 42 on its own wasn't enough. And so he came up with that. And none of us really liked it, I think probably because someone else outside the group had a hand in it. Um, so we thought, well, we'll keep it for this first record and then we'll change it to something better. And of course that turned out to not be necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a good choice to keep the name, I bet. <laughs> yeah, and then of course, years, you know, every time we'd have an interview, we'd be asked the question, how did you come up with the name? And we'd each point at someone else to answer it because of course it's the most asked question <laughs> that mm. we get. 
And, and then all these stories started, you know, when, it, when we kind of hit the big time in the mid-80s, it was like, oh, yes, I heard that uh, you were in a 40-story car park and you got the name from there. And <clears throat> all these sort of other theories about how the name came about started circulating, which is quite funny. Yeah, and you, you pretty much should have confirmed all of them to, get, to have people guess. <laughs> well, I mean, it depends on how we felt on the day. Right. So we say, yeah, that's absolutely right. Because <laughs> we couldn't be bothered to go through the whole explanation of how we actually got the name. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> now, between you and Mark King, how do you guys decide who like performs lead vocals on a song? Because you, you know, you both performed you know, quite, quite a bit of you guys' uh, hits. Um, it generally falls to who's written it. Um, you know, if I come up with a vocal line, I tend to sing it and vice versa with Mark. Um, but, you know, occasionally, you know, like on the last EP, Aaron's Mark wrote a song, um, but he asked me if I would sing it because he kind of heard my voice singing it. And, you know, sometimes in the studio, I might sing something and it's not kind of sounding right, so Mark might have a go on it or vice versa. So... But generally speaking, it's who, who composed the book line will be, will be who's singing it. Now, uh, like back in the 80s with, with some of your hits, now, the videos now aren't really as popular as they used to be. How much fun or how much, uh, I would say, annoyance were videos for you guys? Did you enjoy making them? Oh, yeah, very much. I mean... Um, it was a kind of insight because, uh, you know, especially some of you know, the videos like Something About You and, um, you know, Running the Family or It's Over, uh, Take a Look, Where We're on Location, Heaven in My Hands. Um, I mean, they were great to do because it's kind of like, you know, uh, you just get to sort of uh, you know, really fulfill the fantasy of being a, a rock star and have lots and cameras on you and people say cuts and that kind of thing dressing up and you know costumes it, it was good fun to do um, but then of course the other side of it is, is the amount of time it takes and how many different you know shots are done and then um, you get an insight into how it must be a little bit for a, you know film actors because it's, it's, it's long days and, and a lot of crew for uh, a very short project in the end you know like a three minute forty thing but, you know, it was great. It was great to do. And of course, videos were a, a fantastic medium of, you know, getting song played. So that was the main reason, obviously, for doing it. And, and, it, was, and it was lovely. Because, uh, especially with something like with something about your video where there was a storyline, but it wasn't sort of exactly kind of clarified. There was, there was some kind of loose ends and question marks to it. So uh, um, it was nice to have people intrigued by that. Plus, also, on that video, you know, we got to work with um, uh, the actress Sherry Lungi as, you know, playing the, sort of the, the girl in the video for each of us in a different scenario. And, I mean, she's, a, you know, she'd just come back from filming The Mission with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons. And now I was standing opposite her, someone who's not had any acting training or experience. <laughs> and, you know, having to sort of, you know, act, as it were. So it kind of was very humbling. But, um, you know, great to sort of have those kind of opportunities to work with someone like that. Right, and during those times, you, you opened up for some you know, major acts. You know, Madonna, I saw you on that 1987 tour. How... Yeah. Yeah, how... 
different is the marketing between like the U.S. and Europe? Because obviously, for some reason, you guys are a lot bigger in Europe than you are in the U.S. Well, um, I think you know it's, it is a different market. It's a different country. Um, there are different ways of doing things, and also, I mean, you know, with Europe, you know, our success started in Holland, and it kind of spread outwards, you know, to to Germany and eastwards to. Belgium and, and the UK and we've really built up a lot of our following from just doing lots and lots of touring, lots of live gigs and I think by the time we got to be you know, really successful in Europe and then going to America we were more or less starting as an unknown band and America is a, is a massive place obviously. I don't need to tell you that <laughs> but you can't just go and do New York and LA and Chicago and Miami and Hey, we broke in America because obviously it doesn't work like that. And, and you know, I've grown up with stories and heard stories about the police who we, you know, we've done our first opening shows with in Germany um, right back in '81. And the stories about the fact that they stuck their stuff, stuff in a van and just were driving around, you know, with, you know, Miles Copeland, their manager, kind of overseeing it. But they just gigged and gigged and gigged and did interview, interview, interview. Um, and it took a long time and a lot of work. And I think, you know, the same for us. So, uh, you know, we we were lucky because we had, you know, uh, I, I like to think, you know, some great records. But, you know, to get people to hear those records meant getting on loads and loads of different radio stations and, um, and sort of playing to as many people as possible, which is why it was great to do the opening shows for Madonna and Tina Turner and Steve Winwood. Um, and then we do little club tours in between, and, and they were like tiny clubs compared to the, you know, arenas and stadiums we were playing with the other artists. So you could just see what the gap was between being really established and really starting out. So maybe if we just spent another three or four years just solely concentrating on America, playing live, I'm sure that would have helped. But we couldn't do that because, you know, we had, they were calling us from Europe. I mean, come on, you know, we need to see you here. There's the big venues and big tours that we wanted to play. And so we were trying to, you know, trying to do sort of three things at once. So um, I think that was probably why, you know, we never kind of made it huge in America. And I mean, of course, you can't guarantee that people are going to like you the same way they like you somewhere. So, you know, who, who's to know um, if, if, you know, we'd have been as big as Madonna or, or Tina Turner. You know, it, it's nice to think. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. You know, you gotta like turn away from success in one place or success in the other place. It's it's really difficult, I can imagine. Yeah, and and also, you know, there was some kind of bit of record company politics involved because there were there were two branches of Polygram that were representing us. There was one office in New York and there was one office in LA, and they didn't always agree on what they thought the next single should be. Plus, we were told you know, in no uncertain terms by certain record players that we've made it a problem by not having our music in one genre. So, for example, Something About You did really well and was really successful. And then the Leaving Me Now ballad, you know, was kind of the follow-up. And then they were talked about doing Hot Water, so they pulled that off a previous album, which was more R&B, and Leaving Me Now with AOR, and 
tapping my hands didn't fit anything, and it was kind of like, you know, you, you guys are making us our lives hard. You're making me look bad in the radio station, kind of thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's like that's one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of you guys because you don't just have one set style. Yeah, it's just so different and it's you know, you can't really like pigeonhole into one, you know, genre. Well you know, that's you know, that's a legacy of, of our influences and what inspires us musically and as creative people, you know. We wanna make the next album a different album to the one we did before. So there's never any question of okay. Lessons in Love and Running in the Family are, are huge, so, you know, we want you to do Lessons in Love 2 and 3 and so on. And maybe from a commercial point of view, that might have been a good idea, but basically it, it would, would have been an aspect to us because, you know, we, you know, you want to write a song that's different from before, you know, you want to try and write something that's better or, you know, maybe use different sounds or, or maybe just, you know, what inspires you because you're in a different place in your life and then different country, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how it works, and so that's always been the thing for us, is to sort of try and do something fresh. Now, you kind of move forward a little to the 90s, when the, the band, you know, broke up a little for quite some time. What was the reason why they broke up, and were you surprised that you guys actually reformed? Well, um, the idea actually wasn't to break up per se, but, um, you know, we'd, we'd had a, uh, we made an album which came out as guaranteed, um, uh, uh, and we, we basically had a divorce with Polydor Records, unfortunately, because we'd written a new album, and they weren't happy about putting it out the way it was, and we had an argument about it, and it got into legal things, and, you know, which was kind of very unfortunate. Um, and then we were with a new record company, and then uh, the follow-up to the Guaranteed album was the Forever Now album, and uh, we had a new A&R guy, and he was very keen on, on sort of being involved in listening to what we were writing, and uh, kind of giving it a thumbs up or a thumbs down or whatever. I mean, this was something that had never happened previously. We'd just written the album, and we presented it to the record company. They said, great, this should be the first single, this is the next single, and so on. Um, when it got to the sort of beginning of the 90s, there was a recession happening, and, um, you know, because the follow-up to the Running in the Family album, which was Staring at the Sun, had not sold as many as everyone was projecting and hoping for, there was more scrutiny on the, the creative process and whether we'd, you know, provided them with commercial enough material and so on. And this kind of really went against what we wanted to do, which was to just write a new album, write something different, and okay, it may not be as big as the last album in terms of sales, but, uh, you know, we're here for the long haul, and so we, we kind of felt like we were, I suppose, something like a Steely Dan type of band where, you know, we, we'd produce albums, and we'd go away and we'd produce another album that might be different, and it may be big or it may not be big, but, you know, sooner or later we catch a wave again. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And then when our Forever Now album came out, um, you know, it seemed as though all of that interest in the record company was kind of wasted because there was just not the marketing or promotion. And, you know, we weren't being asked to go and do stuff that we would normally expect to be doing to promote, you know, the singles. So 
it got to the stage we thought, like, we've been doing this for 15 years, me and Mark would have said, maybe it's time to give it a rest uh, and sort of, you know, have a break, do other things, and then, you know, put it on ice, and then come back again and sort of, you know, start playing again. So that's, that was more or less the plan. So 94, we did our tour to promote uh, the Forever Now album, and we kind of build it as, like, our sort of farewell tour for the time being, and we went off and did other things. Mark did a solo album. I went and did other musical projects, and also, to be honest, other non-musical things because um, you know there'd been no gap year. Uh, you know, Level Forty Two started when I was in college, and for the, about fifteen years it was album tour, album tour, album tour, pretty much. And so it's kind of like, hey, so who am I? So I'm not Mike Linda of Level Forty Two. Who's Mike Linda? What what? What's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything if, if it's not to do with doing another album and another tour right now? So it was kind of quite nice, actually, to not have to do that. And then Mark reformed the band in 99, and he gave me a phone call, and I kind of wasn't interested in rejoining the band at that time because I had a few other things going. And um, so he kind of carried on without me, and then I rejoined in 2006 when the Retroflide album came out. Yeah, so during your break from the band, you you released Conversations with Silence, which I absolutely love. It's it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful record. Uh, is that something that you probably couldn't have done had you been in the band? So it was good to have like your own projects and kind of like a passion of those type of musics. Yeah, I think so. You know, I played with uh, I played with a Uruguayan band called Negro Pan, and uh, I played. Later on, joined up with a Brazilian R&B band called Delata and, and did some shows with them, which was great because I love Brazilian music. So it was kind of like a dream. And, yeah, there was lots of space. And, and uh, you know, I had a great piano at home. And, you know, I'd always, you know, get a lot of my, my ideas and inspiration and still do from just sitting at the piano and playing. And the conversations now with Silence album came out of you know, people say to me, oh, I love the way you play the piano. Have you ever thought of doing a piano album? That was kind of the idea um, behind that. And I think, yeah, having the space, having time to go and, you know, spend time up in Scotland, for example, where I'm lucky enough to have somewhere I can go there on holiday regularly and just get away from, um, you know, the, the hustle and bustle of London. I think... You're right, it, it probably wouldn't have been able to happen had I not you know, had that time and space. And uh, you know, my, my solo projects tend to be, take a few years to actually get get together and get finished. Um, so I, I very much appreciated that. So that when I rejoined my book in 2006, it was good because we immediately sort of clicked as if no time had passed. But because all of that time had passed and we'd done different things, it was, it was an appreciation you know, we, we have something together that's very special, but um, I could bring all of, the, all of the stuff that I've been doing that was non-Level 42, all of that experience I could sort of bring back into what I was doing with Level 42. Yeah, and it's, it's a good, um, it definitely benefits the band that way, I can imagine. I would hope so, yes. I, you know, I think that, you know, the, the trouble is, like, you know, you're, you're working with someone, you know, for years and years and to keep things fresh you know sometimes you need a bit of space the band now is playing festivals throughout Europe 
Is there any chance of Level 42 coming across the Atlantic and playing in the States? Ah, uh, yes. Well, uh, it's not for the want of trying or wanting to come. Um, you know, we it's, now with the social media, it's, it's very easy to, you know, see how many friends you've got and get, you know, communications and messages, and, you know, support and, you know, requests and stuff. And, yeah, you're not the first person to say, why haven't we come to America? It's, it's, it's tricky for us because... You know, we'd love to come, and if it was down to us, we'd, we'd just turn up with our gear and we'd play. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there, there is a kind of financial um, side to it, and you know, if we go and do gigs, you know, it has to at least break even or, you know, or, or be, be worth it, because, you know, like a lot of bands now, we make money from playing live. It's not from selling records or CDs or downloads anymore. You know, it's completely turned around from when we started where you played live to sell product as it were now it's kind of like you're lucky if you sell some CDs at the gig and you know maybe get a few downloads or get you know point zero 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 one cent from Spotify or whatever um, so you know live is, is really where it's at so it has to, it has to be worth it and the last tour we did in the States in 2010 it was fantastic to play those shows um, but unfortunately, you know, it was at a loss. And so we're just hoping that we can persuade promoters to, you know, have faith to sort of book us to come because that's what it needs. Um, our agency in London has recently um, joined a partnership with an American agency and we're hoping that next year we can get some gigs in the state. Um, we're planning to do a new EP for next year, which will help. Um, we did our first shows in South America last year, I think, in this collaboration, which was fantastic in Chile and Argentina. So I really hope that we come to America again. And, um, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm sure all your American fans, including myself, will be at those shows and very excited. But now, like, when you guys perform at festivals, it's like, you know, the 80s type of festivals. How difficult is it to kind of come up with a set list? So you kind of please everybody, you know, you, you play the hits, but play things that, because you guys have over 200 songs about coming up with a kind of complete set list. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the thing that, where we're lucky is, you know, we've had some fantastic songs that have been, you know, hits worldwide, um, and, you know, that, that we can still enjoy playing. So when we're putting a set together, whether it's a, a longer set for a tour or a, tends to be a, a shorter set, you know, typically an hour for a festival show, um, you know, we, ha we have to play the, the hits because, you know, uh, we both feel, Mark and I, that if we went to see one of our favorite artists and they said, I'm not going to play any of my old stuff, I'm only going to play new stuff, then we'd be disappointed. So, so part of the set is already spoken for, as it were. But then the rest of the set, we can cherry pick from all of those, you know, 15 or 16 albums, um, which varies it up in terms of, you know, what we're playing to people and also for us to play. Um, so that's great. You know, we've got a lot of materials that we can chop and change and choose, you know, to do or, you know, re-include something that we've played, you know, three tours ago or whatever, um, because we got a new guy on the drums, you know, with like Pete Ray Biggin who joined us in 2010. It's been a fantastic shot in the arc for us. 
Um, and I can, you know, Mark really loved, you know, playing with Pete and vice versa. So it's 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 really good, you know. It, it's um, it's great to have such a great body of work, and it's great that people still want to hear us play, uh, given that, you know, we've got all these songs, and you know, people are coming and wanting to hear us play those songs still. And the older we get, I think the more we appreciate it. And I think the band is kind of playing you know, as good or if not better than it's ever been, you know, as, as we get older, we're, we just, you know, I think, you know, we seem to be maturing like a fine wine, which is very heartening. Yeah. So I imagine like, there are a lot of bands now who have a love-hate relationship with some of their hits or some of it, like a hate-hate relationship. So it's good to see that you guys still like performing those songs. Yeah, I mean, if if it was down to us just playing, you know, in a garage, we probably wouldn't. But, you know, you can see how much those songs mean to people and how much they enjoy them. And, uh, you know, so then it, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to play. Um, I, I've got to add also, you know, since uh, the Sirens EP came out in, you know, 2012, we've got a, we've got a, a three-piece brass section with us. So there's seven of us on stage now. Um you know, along with Sean Freeman on sax, we've got uh, Nicole Thompson on trombone and Dan Carpenter on trumpet, and uh, they play fantastic together. And uh, it, it kind of adds an extra dynamic to the show. Plus, they're doing their all—they're they're making up their own choreography right. <laughs> as well. So uh, it's kind of they're having fun and doing silly things, you know, in unison. Um, and so it's really kind of lightened the, the vibe. So you know, it means that we can't take ourselves too seriously which i think is a good thing right and how much has like the technology uh changed for you being you know playing on keyboards back in the 80s and now playing you know now i imagine you can just play all your stuff off of like a laptop correct yes i can um and i do use a laptop um because um right from the very early days i mean there's been two keyboard players in level 42 there's been myself and wally Badaru who uh, has played on, you know, every record pretty much, um, became a co-composer with us and a co-producer with us in sort of from World Machine onwards. So I always had the, the, the challenge of having to reproduce two keyboard parts just with my own two hands. Um, and so, you know, it, it meant that you know, basically as soon as I could afford to have more than two keyboards, I would have them because I'd be sort of jumping from sound to sound um, to try and reproduce that. And then got my first, you know, Roland step sequencer in '84 to sort of help out with some of the bass lines and and uh, some of the cloud parts. And then that kind of went to a, you know, a kind of more sophisticated Yamaha sequencer. And then it kind of went into eventually into hardware sequences and then eventually a laptop once we had decided that laptops were going to be reliable enough. Um, so we've always run extra keyboard parts um, and play along with them. Not on all of the songs, but on quite a lot of the songs. And of course, you know, we can sort of throw in bits of backing vocals and a few sort of you know, percussion effects and so on. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's made my job um, a lot easier but um, I still take a pride in playing. Um, so, you know, I would 
to get to the stage where it was just a question of pressing go and I'm just sort of sitting there. Um, you know, I'd much rather be playing and, and you know, because then you're doing, you're interacting and then you've got a chance to do something a bit different every night and so on. Right. And one one last question, uh, more of a solo uh, question. How did you get involved with the Thrill Alive? Oh, right. Um, well, it was uh, it was through a musician friend of mine, a guy called Mike Mondesi, who's a fantastic bass player and uh, he plays a lot with Billy Cobham. And um, he was playing on one of the Thrill Alive tours. I mean, the Thrill Alive show is now in its ninth year in the West End in London. And it's it's a great show because it's a, it's a complete song and dance show. There's no kind of storyline, there's no dialogue to say. It's all the music from the early Jackson 5 right through to the, the, the big Jackson's albums, you know, Victory and then into Off the Wall and Thriller and Bad and Dangerous. So it's a great show to play and uh, it requires a very high standard of musicianship. And I was on a off year, if you like, in the autumn because Level 42 tours every other year. And I happened to be talking to Mike and he said he was doing this Thrill Alive show and how great it was to play, you know, all those great Quincy arrangements and so on. And I said, that sounds fantastic. And he said, well, you know what, they're, they're planning to do a, 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 another touring production. So I have two tours as well as the West End show. And uh, they might be looking for a keyboard player. I said, oh, please put a word in with the um, MD. And so my friend Mike did. And uh, I got in touch with the MD and he... Um, basically said, yeah, come along to the rehearsal, and he booked me, and I did did the first tour in 2009, and I've done four tours, um, or three tours since then, plus I get to play in the West End. And it's great, because I, you know, I get to, cause the, the arrangements that um, the MD John Marr has done are very much, very faithful to the recording. So it's almost like you're getting an insight into how these great, iconic um, songs and albums were put together. And, uh, you know, I get to play, I get to be Greg Fillingang, you know, I get to be George Duke. Um, I get, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And uh, uh, it's, it's a real challenge to play. And, and it's very inspirational because it, I feel as though, in a sense, it's almost as if I get to kind of be in Michael's band in a way. And, Often I'll come off the thriller shows and I'll sort of be buzzing with sort of, you know, ideas for my own things. So it's, it's, it's a very sort of special thing. Yeah, I would, would love to see that show. I saw the, the Circus Soleil and Michael Jackson show in Vegas last year and that was absolutely phenomenal. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that's great. I haven't seen it myself. Yeah, it's it's uh, it was definitely great. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for a few minutes today, and I uh, look forward to seeing you guys hopefully next year. Yeah, I've got everything crossed that that will happen, and uh, yeah, it will be great. And we thank Mike for joining us today. You can follow Mike on Twitter at MikeLinup.com, Level42.com, MikeLinup.com, and we're going to end the show today with Mike's version of Something About You on the Piano.
how can it be that a love carved out of caring, fashioned by fate, could suffer so hard from the games played once too often, making mistakes is a part of life's imperfections. Born of the years, is it so wrong to be human after all? Drawn into the stream of undefined illusion, those diamond dreams, they can't disguise the truth. Because there's something about you, baby, so right. I couldn't live without you, baby, tonight. If ever our love was concealed, no one could say that we didn't feel. And a perfect dream of a life Gone fragile but free We remain tender together Not so in love, it's not so wrong To be human Tonight